As always, we are thankful for the presence of ourselves and visitors that have come our way, for others who we may be able to encourage in our worship of the God of heaven. I hope that you have your Bible available and handy. As you are turning to Genesis chapter 3, we will be reflecting for the next few moments on certain aspects of that passage that Brother Joe read a moment ago. And while you're doing that, I might go ahead and make mention that tonight's lesson will be the installment for February of our questions and answers. So I hope that you'll have the opportunity to be back with us as we look forward to making consideration of that. The lesson will be before you in just a moment. The title of the lesson, as you can test to see, is The Apple Assumption. I have a bit of a question in light of that particular title, and it's one that will be developed on this next slide. May I ask you, what was the forbidden fruit of which Adam and Eve partook? I suspect that you have seen pictures, that you've seen images, that you've seen depictions of what that forbidden fruit might have been. But I'm going to offer the thought that whatever your answer may be, at least in that light of naming something specific, you would be making an assumption. Because the Bible doesn't say what the fruit was. It doesn't say if it was an apple, or a fig, or a pear, or any number of other possible fruits, some of which may not even be readily accessible to you and me at this moment in time. But I suspect if you've seen an artist's rendition of it, you probably have seen an apple. That seems to be the most common choice. What do we think about assumptions this morning? I just mentioned it would be an assumption to be rather strong in asserting it was an apple, for the text doesn't say that. On the slide, I've asked you to think about some assumptions. You and I are rather accustomed to making assumptions, and sometimes these assumptions on the whole turn out to be rather harmless. For instance, you may assume that you have enough eggs to make a cake. When you get home, as you may attempt to make that cake, you may find another dozen in the back of the refrigerator that you didn't remember that you had, and so the original assumption turns out to not be terribly harmful. You had what you needed. There are other assumptions, however, which are not nearly as harmless. What if the fuel gauge on your automobile isn't working exactly right, and as you make ready for a journey, you just assume that you have enough fuel? Well, that might work out fine, but it might not. You may not be able to travel that destination, and you may find yourself in a place with no gas station nearby, and it could be a very unpleasant experience. There are other assumptions, however, which are plain fatal. They're not just unwise, they are beyond foolish. If I were to hand you a clear liquid and ask you to take a drink of it, it might be water, but it might not be. The point is, you and I are faced with making assumptions in life, and sometimes they don't turn out so badly. But sometimes I think we're all aware of the fact that the wisdom and encouragement of the moment would lead us to know just how poor an assumption that would be. Today, why don't we think about assumptions? And let's do so beginning, first of all, with reflecting upon that fruit mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. I asked you a question a moment ago about what it was, and you and I noted the text doesn't say, but it does say some other things I've chosen to bring those before your attention this way. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God particularly told Adam and Eve that they could partake of the fruit of every tree of the garden with the exception of one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree that was positioned in the midst of the garden, we are particularly told that of that tree, that if they were partake of it, God had told them in the day, Thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You may notice at that moment there was any number of possible assumptions that Adam and Eve might well make. They might assume God did not mean what He said. I could partake of it without impunity. Wouldn't that be a ridiculously foolish assumption? If He had plainly said what would happen and then to do it anyway, by the same token, I've asked you to notice on that slide that chapter 3 verse 6 does say this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, whatever its fruit was, whatever the character of that tree was, the text says it was good for food. It no doubt was rather nourishing. It no doubt was rather refreshing. It no doubt answered the appetite of the human frame. But that's not all. It says that it was pleasant to the eyes. I fully anticipate that the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was some of the best-looking fruit in the garden. I'm sure it surpassed many of the others and no doubt looked very inviting. And then finally the text says, It was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now the serpent had just told her in previous verses that if you partake of it, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And you couple all of those together, and the situation before Eve was this. No doubt as she eyed it, it looked good. It looked pleasant. It looked inviting. It looked appetizing. And it would make one wise. At least that's what she'd been told. And then the text says this, She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. She took of the fruit and ate it, despite what God had said. I might set before each of us today the character of assumptions. As you close that slide with me, May I say that some assumptions, as we've, as we've already learned today, are not eternally critical. Oh, it's true, they may have some bearing, but should we not all agree that some assumptions will damn my soul or yours? They are so serious that if I were to assume improperly and choose a course of action that turns out not to be the case, that it'll, it'll send me to hell and it'll do you the same. We cannot then blindly look upon assumptions from a religious standpoint as if they're insignificant, as if they mean nothing, as if they carry no weight. Let's look at a few assumptions that sometimes are made by the human family. And let's look at our first one under the banner of what's connected directly to salvation, the so-called terms of it. Are you aware of the fact that a large segment of the human population operates under the assumption that all good people are going to be saved. May I repeat that? 
a large segment of the population of the planet operates under the assumption that goodness will be enough to save you. And that's also somewhat true of even religious circles. Allow me to read an excerpt from an article. I quote, At least a third of senior pastors in the United States of America believe that one can earn a place in heaven by simply being a good person according to a nationwide survey. And here are the details. The American Worldwide Inventory of 2022, that's last year, examined more than three dozen beliefs held by pastors. Researchers found that in addition to believing that people can merit salvation based solely on their good works, one-third or more of senior pastors surveyed also believe the Holy Spirit is not a person, but rather a symbol of God's power. Others went on to say that moral truth is subjective. Hear this now, please. Furthermore, that sexual relations between two unmarried people who love each other is morally acceptable. And furthermore, that biblical teaching on abortion is ambiguous. Can you believe it? These are the people influencing a large number of so-called religious organizations around the country. Now, you and I know there's a lot of doctrinal problems with what they would uphold. But even on the most basic matters of ethical and moral behavior, over 30% of them are blatantly wrong. Let me read even further. At least a third of those surveyed also said that 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview and found that a loss of biblical belief is prevalent among those of these various denominational groups. It is perhaps startling that 30% did not even answer in the affirmative if salvation is based on confessing sins and accepting Jesus as their Savior. In other words, Jesus didn't have anything to do with salvation in at least 30% of those that, that, that responded. Is it shocking then that a large number of people among whom you and I live, the communities in which we in fact dwell, actually believe or operate on the assumption that just being good is enough to get to heaven. Just don't murder anybody. Just don't steal. May I ask, and doesn't the Bible be quick to say this, if that were true, then why did Jesus ever leave heaven? Anybody can be good in a basic sort of way without any knowledge of directness and detail concerning the Word of God in any way. Why did Jesus ever come if that's true? And why did He ever go to the cross? Why endure the agony, the absolute shame? Didn't the Lord pray on that night before He was crucified, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet it was not possible because the next day He went through it. Had goodness alone been enough to save, as the world would consider it, why did the Lord endure this? Is that one way of thinking that what the world perceives in this matter, this assumption is just plainly wrong. Goodness is not going to be enough. 
Look at some of the verses I've invited you to consider. The Son of God declared it like this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, either the Lord told the truth, or He was deceived, or He plainly lied. You and I are not willing to believe that Jesus lied. Later, the Bible says He never committed a sin, and thus He couldn't have lied. And furthermore, we notice that He was not a, dece a deceiver. The only option is the Lord told the truth. There is only one way to heaven, and it's through Him. He did not say through the meritorious actions of what men may perceive as good works. It is through the matter of dedication to what the Lord taught, through the agency of what He has revealed to us. That's not all. In Acts 4.12, as Peter stood with such boldness and made this declaration, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You and I require the agency of the Christ. May I point it out as directly as this? The problem that has to be dealt with when it comes to salvation is sin. Goodness does not lead to the remission of sins. It doesn't. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 A blood sacrifice, an appropriate blood sacrifice is required and our Savior went to the cross to shed that blood. It is only His blood and the characteristic that it makes available that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. Weren't those on Pentecost told, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And as they were told that in Acts 2.38, doesn't it still remind each of us about the directness? Peter did not tell them, go back home and live a good life. Goodness, you see, is connected ultimately to how God would render it. Can't you and I then see that the assumption that just living what the world would call a good life and assuming that that's going to lead me to heaven is not only faulty, it's completely amiss. And yet our world is encumbered by the nature of that thought. The danger of that assumption, the Bible presents so strongly, doesn't it? What about a second assumption? Aren't you and I thankful in light of the first one that the Word of God has detailed what is that plan of salvation? And as you and I give attention to it and faithfulness to it, how sweet it is to rest upon the conviction that it makes possible. That my sins are forgiven not because I've assumed it, but because God said it. That removes it from the realm of assumption. And that forgiveness that the Bible describes, how wonderful, how refreshing. This second assumption is another one that offers a fair amount of danger. The concept of worship. The activity in which you and I are right now engaged. We understand that as the Bible describes worship, a number of matters could be offered. And I have in fact begun the slide like this. There are many in our world who operate on the thinking that as long as worship is offered with a degree of earnestness and sincerity, that, that is enough. It doesn't much matter what else might be said about it. So long as your heart is in it, 
fair question. Is that true? Does it matter what you do in the course of worship so long as you do it with a desire for accomplishing it? I ask that question because, again, these statistics could well be shared about how that many feel as if what you do is rather irrelevant. On that slide, I've invited you to consider the following. First of all, we might need to take note what worship is and what worship is not. Worship consists of acts of reverence directed to God. The New Testament prescription for that is so often presented. But having said that, it also is interesting to note. Jesus Himself declared in John 4.24 that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And by the Lord's choice of that word must, doesn't that remind us that it is an absolute matter? It is a requirement. It's necessary that worship be offered in spirit. And that means indeed our heart must be involved. It must be a matter desirous of our spirit to offer to God our heartfelt obeisance. And so it is, we've come together today, not because we felt like we had to, but because we genuinely wanted to. And there's no better place on earth to be than in the assemblies of the saints, directing to God our heartfelt homage and our heartfelt worship. We'll look forward just as strongly to the 5.30 hour tonight and to the 7 o'clock period on Wednesday, because there's nowhere else we would wish to be. Isn't it that light, though, that brings us to note this? As far as the worship consistent with spirit, that also opens the question, what about the truth part of it? So who determines the truth in direction to worship? In John 17, 17, our Lord Himself declared it like this, Sanctify them through Thy truth, Thy word is truth. The Word of God ascertains and sets forward that which is the truth. Psalm 119, verse 172, you and I, as we appreciate the opportunity of the truth, even as the psalmist exclaimed it, it still is God's righteousness, that which is right. I suppose in that connection, we now come today to think that there are thousands of religious organizations on our planet. And many of them, no doubt, at least in the central time zone, are meeting right now just like we are. Many of them are doing very different things. Many of them are doing a whole host of different activities, and some are doing exceedingly different things. Our question is not what man may assume, but what does God say about this? Does God care? Does it matter to Him what is offered under the context of worship? If the Word of God says the answer to that is yes, then that removes it from the realm of any need for assumption. We simply do what He says. On that slide, I've invited you to consider that there are some rather strong assertions that men often make in light of what should be an overwhelming component. Has anyone ever asked you, how did you feel in worship? I would say there's an element of danger in that question. First of all, I would point out, you and I should feel a degree of emotion connected to our worship. Worship should not be a lifeless activity. 
Isn't it often pointed out that our spirit must be engaged in it? I will sing with the spirit. I'll sing with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Therefore, when we were led in prayer a moment ago, was my spirit engaged in that prayer so that upon completion I could say amen? 1 Corinthians 14, 16. I hope the same was true for you. When we were singing those songs earlier, I will sing with the Spirit, I'll sing with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Were you and I mindful of the words that we were singing? We should have been. You see, our worship must involve an interest on our part. It's not just a habit we do to take up a few hours of the week. But there's another part to that. What about worshiping in truth? You and I know the Word of God sets before us activities which God has ordained to be a part of worship. These matters which He has authorized by virtue of either biblical context or explicit example. And we thrill at the thought of engaging in them because we know that's what God says He wants. We dare not offer Him what He has not authorized. You'll notice on that slide then that there are many warnings in the Word of God about assumptions in this matter. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So here's a man that assumes this is okay, but upon appreciation of it in the final analysis, it wasn't. Now under that wisdom of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12, you and I realize the power of that kind of presentation. And surely we wish not to tamper with God's descriptions of worship. Beyond that, couldn't we easily make note of the possibility of being misled? In Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can a person then, under the banner of assumptions, under the light of making a choice that he or she deems to be okay, Recognize finally that they were deceived in the whole matter? Of course. I would again offer the thought of how thankful we ought to be that we have what God says about this. So when it comes to worship, as you come near the bottom of that slide, isn't it true? There's a number of examples, both Old and New Testament, urging us to step gently when it comes to this. Nadab and Abihu tried it in Leviticus 10. They offered strange fire, as the Bible calls it, and then we quickly are given the identification of what that meant. It was fire, He commanded them not. Now we know that the people were to use fire, but this was fire God hadn't commanded. The source of it apparently was not consistent with where God had indicated it be taken, and it was not accepted. In fact, they lost their lives. Furthermore, later in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and following, you and I remember God directly told the children of Israel, I do not like your festivities. I do not like the observances of your offerings, and I will not accept them. And He told them why. Doesn't that at least remind us that not all things offered to God are things He will receive. Men may offer them, but if they're not offered consistent with His will, He won't receive them. Maybe the strongest passage in all that light is Amos, the fifth chapter, where in verses 21 and following, in rather amazing detail, God points out that the people of that day, they were engaging in an aspect of worship. 
They were offering to God, but God says, I hate it, and I will not accept it. I hope at least in the Old Testament that's a reminder that there was an acceptable presentation in worship, and nothing different than that is true in the New. In fact, some additional examples. What about Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 25? There, Paul, in rather interesting detail, describes that there were people who worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. Question, were they worshipping? The text says they were. Did God accept it? Absolutely not. And in the verses that follow, various prescriptives of what was a part of that are set forward. God doesn't just accept whatever's offered to Him. Colossians chapter 1, or rather chapter 2, even highlights that further this way. There were those engaged in will worship. I wonder what that is, will worship. The context does provide us some assistance. It was worship that was consistent with what they preferred. God didn't accept it. You see, you and I aren't given our preferences when it comes to things like this. And so there are those in our world that might prefer a band up here. That has nothing to do with it. There are those that may prefer various other attributes of worship. That would be pleasing and acceptable to them. But didn't Jesus say it like this in Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9? As He summarized that, He said that there are many who will draw nigh to Me with their mouth and honoreth Me with their lips, but in vain do they worship Me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So any time a thus saith the Lord is substituted out and a preference of men is substituted in, that which is rendered is vain worship. Useless, acceptable, failing to accomplish that which was in mind. Maybe it's fair to say that whether it be worship, the assumptions of men can be so deadly. As we learned earlier, Assumptions connected to the terms of salvation. What about another one? Here's another rather dangerous assumption. I know we've each heard it many times over. In fact, rather many, in, in the words of evangelism, have been quick to use it. Join the church of your choice. Find you a congregation of some sort in your community that you happen to prefer and begin working with them, the church of your choice. I suppose, again, we ought to give thought. That's an interesting assumption. Does the Bible endorse it? Does the Word of God encourage it? Does the Word of God teach something concerning the church of one's choice? You may notice near the top of that slide that the issue here overwhelmingly surrounds the matter touching what the New Testament teaches concerning the church. The very first time that the word church occurs in the New Testament is Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord said there was one church. I will build my church. This organization, it will have my stamp of authority and my stamp of approval. I shall build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That church of which the Lord spoke, it wasn't in existence at that time, for He used the future tense verb, I will build it. 
Later on in Mark 9, verse number 1, another reference is found to the kingdom, and it was yet future at that point. But it was quickly pointed out that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. It was going to come in the lifetime of some of those with the privilege of hearing the Master preach that day. As you and I turn the page into the book of Acts, we encountered that the Lord had suffered, of course, and died on the cross, but He'd been resurrected. And right before He ascended back to heaven, He told them, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And those apostles dutifully remained in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 1, we learned that as they learned or heard the Master preach, He told them one more time that the kingdom was shortly to come in, into reality. And in the next chapter it did. You may notice on that slide then, aren't we reminded that Paul would later say there is one body, only one. Ephesians 4 verse number 4. And though men may assume then that there's a large number of bodies, religious in character, all acceptable to the Heavenly Father, you notice that runs counter to the presentation of the Bible. Though men may assume it, it is not true. One body. That text is a rather familiar one to each of us. Wasn't it the case that Paul would write, there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And that precious body of which the Lord spoke in earlier passages was, of course, that kingdom of which you and I are blessed to be a part today. The unity prescriptive of that body is perhaps highlighted in, a, in the strongest way in 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10. I'll use that as you come near the bottom of that slide with me to highlight this. As Paul made statement to that congregation in Corinth, he pointed out to them that they were to be unified as strongly as this. You're to be of the same mind, of the same judgment. That means when it comes to these matters connected to the features of service to the Lord, there's to be an understood unity, an appreciation of who you're following and the particulars of what that following involves. Today, you and I have noticed three assumptions that the human family seems quick to make. The terms of salvation... Well, do whatever you seemingly feel like would be the best. That just isn't true. On the other hand, do whatever you feel is best in worship that you find enjoyable. That won't work. Someone else says, find a church that seems to teach what you prefer and work with them. Be a part of them. And that won't work either. Jesus didn't build a multiplicity of churches. He didn't orchestrate and approve and ordain characteristics of a number of different plans of salvation. In Acts 15, 9, the same thing the Jews had to do in Acts chapter 2 is what the Gentiles were required to do in that passage in the chapters preceding. It was exactly the same. And later on, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 that that middle wall of partition had been broken down. And now there was a persuasive and powerful unity characteristic of those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let's close our lesson like this. What was the forbidden fruit? The Bible doesn't say. It would be assumption to say it was an apple. And yet, I might say that there are far more dangerous assumptions that many people are choosing to make in our world today. Choosing to be a part of an organization that the Bible doesn't authorize. Choosing to follow a plan of salvation that the Bible doesn't detail. Choosing to be a part of worship services containing particulars that are not those approved by the God of heaven. I'm sure you could think of other assumptions in the name of religion that many might well choose to make. Today, may I suggest that aren't you thankful? Am not I thankful that we need not make assumptions in this matter? The church of our Lord is set forward in the New Testament. Its government, the character of its nature, and that which it does, including its worship, all of it not only set before us, but highlighted in beautiful detail. As far as the destination of that body, the New Testament, again, is not silent. Blessed are they that die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. To die in the Lord is a blessing. An attainment of rest. That's something that you and I should then think about today. And don't rest that on an assumption. Don't allow assumptions to lead to courses of action there, but rest on the certainty of texts like 1 John 5, 13. You and I can know that we're saved. As we close this lesson today, Brother Eddie has chosen a song of encouragement. And we're going to offer the Lord's invitation. I hope that you haven't allowed assumptions to lead you along pathways in life that are now incredibly dangerous. But I know that's a possibility for any of us. May you and I, again, rest upon the teaching of the Lord. If we could perhaps help one or more today, because you have never obeyed the gospel initially. It is the Lord Himself who set before us the nature of required belief in Him, John 8, verse 24. The requirement of repentance of our sins, Luke 13, verse 3. The requirement of confessing the sweet name of His, we're told that in Matthew chapter 10. And finally, to be baptized in water for the remission of our sins, Mark 16, 16. Today, if you haven't attended to that need, don't delay any longer. Your life is too short and time is too swift. But if you have known that way of salvation and you've lived in harmony with it but have arrived at a point in life where maybe gradually you've begun to accept some assumptions that you now realize are dangerous and eternally deadly, don't remain in that condition. The Lord is looking with great interest and hopefulness that you will hear His precious and loving invitation to come back to His faithful side. As a wayward child of God, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. And on behalf of your confession and your repentance, we will approach the throne of God. You can do that with tears streaming down your face, thankful for the opportunity to again have those sins forgiven and be faithful and come back to a place where your name too is in the Lamb's book of life. If we could help you in either of those ways today or merely as offers of strength in, in the way of prayer, we'd be happy to do it. We will simply invite you to let us know the way we can help and do it at once while we stand and while we sing.